Amen. So today we are in part two of a two-week series, and that series is on uh, science and the Bible a little bit. Call it science fiction, you could call it whatever you want to call it, fun names, fun puns, whatever they are. But last week we talked about how we approach the Bible together as a community, and, and we were honest about the reality that many of us open the pages of the words that are in the Bible and read the words in the Bible, and they're obscure, right? I mean, they they're, you know, have God speaking at times, people raising from the dead at other times, and, and we don't know always what to do with them, and sometimes we're left with some pretty big questions especially as we go throughout community and we might hear other people say something like, well, these are God's words, right, on paper, and you must believe what it says. And I believe that the Bible is vital for our Christian faith. Although I also uh, believe, and I'll reiterate from last week, that I don't think that there is any such thing as self-interpreting texts, which means that you can't just open anything and expect it to mean what it says, because we're always taking our interpretation on it. And so we talked briefly for a little while last week about how we, in the United Methodist tradition, and I say we for those of us that are here, and you might not know anything about the United Methodist tradition, and that is totally fine. And I would say that one of the most important things to know about this tradition is that we approach Scripture with a a holistic understanding, that we think that Scripture is primary for our faith and understanding, but we also include other components as we interpret, like what the church has said throughout history and how our personal experiences and the experiences of others are valuable and can perhaps change the way we read the text. And then also that science is not to be disregarded and the people within academic communities that do, you know, sociology, psychology, all theologies, right, that they're not to be disregarded um, but in fact listened to as reason, as people that we can help approach the scripture together and perhaps do this audacious thing, binding God's voice, finding God's voice. Although, uh, and we talked a little bit about a youth that I had encountered where they were, you know, wrestling with the tension of, you know, someone that said, well, God made everything in seven literal days, right? And that's the way we have to believe it. And yet science class was telling us something else. Science class was telling us something else. So that's where we were last week. And just a quick, you know, overview on that. If you missed it and that's of interest to you, we have podcast and YouTube and Facebook and you can catch up there. But this week, I want to kind of take the flip side of that. This week, I want to take a flip side of that and I'm going to tell you why. So there is a limit to which any of those ways that we interpret, you know, whether it's the tradition, whether it's our experiences, and today I'm going to talk specifically around this kind of science in a very, very broad term limits to where they will get us in our faith. And I remember sitting down at one point and I was uh, invited to this uh, video, like, you know, we were down in Hollywood in college or like in that area. And so we were invited to that area to go and uh, to go to this filming of this guy that was um, debunking the Da Vinci Code. So you know, some of you remember that book that was written, I mean, probably when, uh, you know, like 20 years ago now, it feels like, that it was written about kind of the ancient history of the church, and there's all this, like, conspiracies that were going on, and for some Christians, it was really hard, I mean, because it was, like, you know, rocking understanding of the faith and church, and so there was a, uh, some people that thought it was really important that we accurately refute the Da Vinci Code, and in part because some people 
unknowingly were reading this fictional story, The Da Vinci Code, thinking it was accurate historically, right? And so I remember sitting down there with a couple of my students. They brought all these Bible major people, you know, young college students together from Southern California. They reached out to the different colleges and they brought us together. And I remember sitting there and the person that was debunking the Da Vinci Code um, I had some questions for them, and they didn't like those questions. But some of the questions were is that the Bible is exactly 100% accurate all the time. And so a few of us that were in Bible study or Bible class together raised our hand and we said, well, what about, you know, the two different accounts of John the Baptist dying in the Bible? And how do you, uh, you know, take into consideration that there's two different timelines? Or, or what about the fact that, you know, there's two different narratives of how the earth came into being, you know, what about some of those things? And he, he was get, like flustered and got upset, cut, they cut the reel, you know, they like avoided us the rest of that film, right? Any questions that we raised our hands, they, they actually asked us not to raise our hands anymore, which was quite funny, but the, it was just shaking to them, shaking to him because he later on started talking about how he was going to the Middle East to find the ark, you know, because they had found Noah's ark and they were going to do uh, some dig, we were, they were going to, you know, unravel it and do all that stuff. But it was just very apparent that this man's faith hinged, it seemed to me, on the Bible being historically accurate all the time. That it was so important to the way that he understood God that if, if someone argued against it, it was just totally upsetting, just totally upsetting. And there's that side of the coin, right? You have some people that you know, perhaps, that, that just, you know, the Bible is what it says and it says what it is, and that's the way it is. And if, if it's anything other than that, it's faith-shaking. It's just not, you know, they get upset and they get ruffled. And, and if you say something, I remember a professor said, this isn't a new phrase for me, that said, there is no such thing as self-interpreting texts. That was in graduate school. A professor said that. And a student got up and said, no, that is wrong. You know, it's so faith-shaking for that student in graduate school to hear a comment. So it is there in the ethos, friends, it is there in the ethos, that if the Bible is not 100% accurate all the time, that it is, you know, a sham in their minds. So yeah, to believe it, it must be historical. Well then, that's one side of this coin, right? I also have studied under different people and read different books where historical evidence is the way that we understand God. There's, in fact, an entire uh, campaign called the Historical Jesus. I know you know about this, right? But the Historical Jesus campaign, there's been like three different ones. But this is a time period within academics and it with, even within the church where groups of Christians come at the Bible and they say, what did the Bible actually say? Let's, let's pull out all of the, you know, mystical stuff in it, the stuff that, let's be honest, didn't actually happen, right? And let's get at the kernel of truth within it. And so they dig and they dig and they have a skepticism about what is part of the Bible and what isn't part of the Bible. And then they come down and say, these, these are the things that are true about the Bible, that are true about the Bible. And, and that might be that Jesus lived. There's no disputing that Jesus lived. Some of the events around Good Friday and Easter, people don't dispute those things, but other pieces of the Bible, like Jesus raising for the dead, immaculate birth, all those things, 
the historical Jesus campaign has relegated as, well, probably not true, right? So you have one side of the coin that finds that the Bible has to be accurate at all times, and then the other side of which sometimes seems to disregard portions of the Bible as unbelievable, as non-essential, because they're outlandish and they don't happen anymore. Both of these perspectives, I think, have drunk from the well of reason a little too much. Remember, I talked about those quadrilaterals for a minute. And I'm saying this because it is Christ the King Sunday. And when we read this scripture on this day, we read a scripture that says, Jesus is, he was, and he is to come. Now, friends, there is nothing on either side of these coins that's going to make me reasonably understand that statement of faith that was made, right? Jesus was, he is, and he is to come. That he has died, he has risen, and he will come again. This, this foundational belief about who Christ is makes zero sense to someone that's looking for historicity as the value of our faith. And remember I said that I believe that science and reason can only take us so far. There, and I know that this is uh, meant to be a little bit more of an instructional Sunday, just like last is. We're going to move into some, fluff, some like heartwarming, close-to-home Advent messages in the week to come. But this Sunday is meant to be a little bit, um, you know, educational for us, okay? Put that on the shelf for a moment. Next week, I'm going to California, and I, I'm excited about this opportunity. It's the first time we're leaving Island, and we haven't been to California. My wife's family is from there, and uh, we haven't been there in two years. And, and we, as a family, haven't been there. I, I think Stella, you know, has only been a couple of times. But you know where we haven't been, and I really love? Disneyland. <laughs> yeah? You all feel me on Disneyland? It, and I'm excited. That it, I mean, it's a little bit of a risk for us. We're going to Disneyland. The pandemic's like, you know, over, but we got one vaccine for uh, most of our kids, and Ashley and I are vaccinated, so we're feeling good going to Disneyland. And, you know, what, what's the phrase, right? The, ma- the most magical place on earth. And I'm trying to describe Disneyland to my kids, right, and what that experience is going to be like. And I'm like, guys, it's like those movies you watch. They come to life before you, you know, like Star Wars is like right there. Or, you know, you get down in the submarine with Little Mermaid, and, and it brings you back for a moment to that place. And, and those of you who are Disney lovers, you know that, like, that feeling, right, that nostalgia that's there. I bring that up for a moment because there is something all too valuable in that feeling that we have, right? And going back to like Disneyland or wherever that land is for you brings and stirs those emotions within us. But we, as most of us here are in the room, adults, right? Adulting usually means what? To leave those fantasies behind, right? to leave those fantasies behind. That we're supposed to live in a world uh, of the practicalities of life. I mean, we got to pay the bills and do our jobs and, and do all those things. And so the, the fantasy and the imagination, and that, that's child's play, right? How many times have you, have you heard that phrase, child's play? One of the things I love about being a dad of young kids 
is they remind me of that Disneyland moment on multiple times throughout the day, whether it's, you know, Grayson running around, climbing a tree, he's my middle child, he's, he's, and he's just making up a story in his mind about what's happening, or, or Stella that, you know, tells me this elaborate scene that's unfolding with the, the toys that she has in front of her, right? They live in this world of imagination, and it might not be a world that is real, right? But it is providing them value in their lives and a sense of joy and goodness. And I think that that emotion that stirs in some of us when we go back to somewhere like Disneyland is kind of a, 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 an opportunity that we're given in society where we can allow imagination to take over for a minute. We can allow imagination to kind of breathe life into us again. Because we live in a world where, you know, like I said, it's the tangible. Those are child's play. What if I was to tell you that that perspective is a rather new one within the kind of human history? That with this movement called enlightenment, right around, you know, the time of the 17th, 16th century, 17th century, and 18th century, we were discovering the world, you know. You had the people that realized that, you know, the, the sun, that we don't revolve around the sun, or, or, well, the sun doesn't revolve around us, but we revolve around the sun. We things like gravity, you know, all these things that we were discovering. And then we developed this method to understand the world, the scientific method, you know, Francis Beacon, right? That if I study things, I might know not just those things, but I might know the things beyond, Right? And so we put ourselves to the methods of researching and, and seeing what we can understand. And so, of course, of course, that we as a people have tended to bring that perspective to the Bible to find our value within it, right? This idea that we can study it and if we just know enough about it and it's like historical truths that are there, we might be able to interpret a nugget into our daily lives or, you know, the, it's the set in stone guide for us because everything is literally there for, you know, our salvation and for, you know, everything we need. And so we find that sort of concrete, firm, that groundness. But that's a new phenomenon, in fact, just before the Enlightenment movement, there was a much larger phenomenon that had a much longer history within our faith called mysticism. And mysticism is the idea that it's not just about knowing, but it's about being united with the beyond. Uh, follow me for a minute. That our faith, like the Bible, isn't about just like knowing what happened or knowing the truth of how to live, but the Bible is, is about bringing us from this sort of realm here to the beyond, to the, the divine, to God. See, because one of the limitations when we allow reason and science in whatever trajectory it takes itself to kind of lead us in our faith. And I, I love academics, and it goes there. But one of the problems with that is that it's about our ability to know God. It's about our ability to know God. And hold on just for a second. I believe that one of the primary thrusts of the Bible, and especially our faith, is not about us coming to know God, but about God coming to us. About God coming to us. 
This is something that's beyond all reason, friends, because this is something that we cannot do ourselves. We can't. We can't come to know God, no matter how much you study the Bible, friends, no matter how much you learn about the earth, no matter how much you know about church tradition, no matter how much you know about experiences of people, we cannot come to know God. And that's why we celebrate this day, and that's why this day leads us into next Sunday. Because what is next Sunday? Remember, I began this morning talking about that, and I said, next Sunday is Advent. Advent. And you know what song we will sing next Sunday? Sorry, sorry, uh, music team, I've already picked out a song. <laughs> o come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, O come, Emmanuel. It is the, the statement of our faith that God in Christ comes to us. That God in Christ comes to us. The most foundational component of our faith is the incarnation, I think. That God comes to us in Jesus. That's why Christmas is so celebratory within the church, right? And friends, reason, tradition, experience are pieces of the puzzle, but they will not help us get to God because the whole point of our faith is about God coming to us. So the entire premise of what we believe kind of goes against the, the flow of this scientific method because we, from the onset of what we hold as faith, will say something nonsensical. And you want to know what that something is? that God is alive and that God comes to us. It's something that is beyond reason in all its forms, but it is the premise of this thing that we call Scripture. You know, Scripture is not about knowing exactly what happened or knowing exactly how to live. Scripture, I believe, is about putting ourselves within the footsteps or foot of the prophets of the, of the women and, and the men of faith that faithfully heard God call them out to serve, called them to be God's people, that gave them nourishment as they wandered in the desert, that taught them in Jesus, that it's about God coming to us and hearing that voice. And there's a theologian that says, ultimately, our hope as we approach the Bible is one that no human can actually attain. Because the hope that we come to the Bible with is for God to speak to us. For the God come to us. And I can't tell you exactly how that is, but I had someone that mentored me tell me when I read the Bible, and I've kept this pretty true, even if I'm in a rush, Say one prayer. Speak to me. And it's not saying that as I open up its words, I know that I will hear it. It's saying that's my prayer when I open its text. Speak to me. Help me know you more. Help me understand. Help me see how you come to us.
And friends, this is what the kingdom of Christ looks like. It's not a kingdom where, you know, we, you know, the God sits up on the throne and, and we, we speculate, what's God doing up there, right? But the kingdom of God is seen in Christ. And we will celebrate it every Sunday for the next month before we light that candle on Christmas Eve. And we'll say, our king came to us. Our king wants us to know, know God's love, know, and not just that we can find it on our own, but God wants to come home to us, to each of us. That's the sort of kingdom in which we live. That's the sort of foundation of our faith that's proclaimed in this audacious claim that Christ is Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. That within it, within Christ, all things are held. And as you move into Thanksgiving and, and you move into this Advent season, I want to reiterate the charge from last week. So if you missed it, yeah, you're good, because it's the same charge. Open the Bible <laughs> and read it. And I invite you this time to make that prayer. Speak to me through these words. Because unless God speaks to you through the words, the words are, are the words. Because we're hoping, as we open its pages, for just the most audacious claim, for God to speak to us. And on Christ the King Sunday, and on each of the Sundays for the next month, we will proclaim that truth over and over again, that God is still speaking and God is still coming to you. I invite you to pray with me. Holy and gracious God, we give you thanks that science and reason are valuable and help us understand more about life, more about the Bible. But we also give you thanks that you are willing not just to be known by us coming to you, but to come to us in your son Jesus, who did not consider equality with the king as something to be grasped or exploited, but emptied himself. So that we might know him, so we might know your love, O oh God. So help us seek that out in the pages of the Bible. Help us read it together. But help us recognize that our faith is more than the tangible. And that you call us to this world of imagination. You know, that imagination that our children remind us of. That those places in our lives that stir in those, those moments. That you call us to this imagination where we live in union with you. And for some of us, that might be on the beach, and others of us, that might be in our favorite novel, but this drawing up. 
And so help us imagine this world that's within the Bible where you speak to us and you call us your beloved and you invite us to go and serve the communities around us. So we thank you that you are Alpha and Omega in all places and all times. Amen.